Irvine. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the February 7th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. We devote the full hour to Jung So Kim's. She's professor and senior associate dean at UCI School of Education on the science of reading. She considers the multidimensional cognitive and, and social processes involved between the reader, the educator, and the environment. Let's start the program now. My guest for the full hour is Dr. Young Sook Kim, a professor and the senior associate dean at UC Irvine's School of Education, who's been involved at the forefront of literacy legislation in California. Her scholarship focuses on understanding language and literacy development and effective instruction for racially, ethnically, economically, and linguistically diverse children, and helping them build strong foundations for their success in school and beyond. Her specific areas of research include oral language, reading, writing, dyslexia, and higher order cognitive skills. She's worked extensively with monolingual children from various linguistic backgrounds, namely English, Korean, Chinese, Spanish, and multilingual children in the U.S. and around the world, that's including low and middle income countries. Her research has been supported by the Institute of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, and the National Science Foundation. She's currently serving as the editor-in-chief for the Journal of Scientific Studies and Reading as the chair of the Vocabulary SIG for the American Educational Research Association, and as an advisory board member for many national and international organizations, such as the National Center on Improving Literacy and Global Reading Network. Her work's been recognized by the Robert M. Gagne Research Award, the Presidential Early Careers Awards for Scientists and Engineers during the Obama administration, and awards at Florida State University, on whose faculty she taught prior to her appointment at UC Irvine. She gets an award from me for plugging into the legislative arena, bringing the heft of her work toward advancing literacy. Dr. Kim earned her Bachelor's of Arts at Kyungbuk National University in South Korea, her master's degrees in teaching English to speakers of other languages from San Francisco State University, as well as in human development and culture from Harvard Graduate School of Education, and her doctor in education at Harvard University in human development and psychology with a concentration on language and literacy and a minor concentration on quantitative policy analysis and education. She was a classroom teacher in San Francisco, California, where her earliest observations about this pedagogy were personal experience. She comes to us today from a conference out of town while we're recording this on February 2nd. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Yong Sok Kim. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. The honor and the delight is all mine. We're going to, everybody, we're going to work from theory 
to research, to application implementation, and further research modeling, and the prospects for improvement amidst other educational themes invading our bandwidth. As I ask her to weave science, public policy, and cultural factors into this all-important matter of literacy, considering two sides of the equation, folks, the reader and the instructor teacher. So let's begin with the basic question, how foundational is reading, how it affects so many things in how we engage our world? And then we'll ask how you discovered this based on your own experience. But the first question, how foundational? Well, that's a really uh, good question. So as adults, most adults are proficient readers and they kind of take this for granted and they don't stop and think about it. But if you stop for a moment and think about what you have done, you know, for example, today, this morning until at this point, Think about all the readings that you had to do. Um, you didn't even think about that you were doing reading, but I'm pretty sure you read a lot of emails. You read signs. So that's kind of a, on a daily life, daily basis. So a bit of cliche, a lot of people say reading is fundamental. It truly is in this modern information-packed society. So, if you, you know, as a Grown up as an adult, it's part of everyday life, including work. For uh, if you think about students in school settings, reading is foundational for their learning. So a lot of times students are expected to be able to read and glean uh, key information from text and apply that you know, in their learning. If you think about some content areas, think about science, social studies, um, any other topics, right? Reading is expected and therefore reading is essential in our day-to-day -day interactions as well as in school settings and workplace. And there's the other, a deeper level of developing critical thinking while we're reading, not just reading something on the face, but un using more bandwidth to sort of parse, is this credible? Is this manipulative? Is this a priority? And, you know, and all that, the, the, re the reading has to do so much in one nano moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. So one thing that I say a lot of times when I talk to people about reading is reading is thinking. So Reading development actually spans into all the way to adulthood. So some people may think reading, when they think about reading, they might think about elementary grade levels, particularly perhaps primary grade levels. But no, that's not correct. As you said, reading involves critical thinking skills, which develops all the way into adulthood. So what happens is we actually develop thinking skills interacting with written text and therefore reading is part of the thinking and you know to do well in reading you actually have to have high critical thinking skills. So what you said you know evaluating the written materials right so you read it you evaluate credibility and all other aspects of it 
but also during reading and after reading, what you're doing is really your mind is working very, very actively to figure out what is the author trying to say. Author does not lay out every single thing explicitly. So you have to use a lot of your background knowledge or your reasoning skills to figure out exactly what author is trying to say. That's called inferencing. So you have to infer information a lot of times. You also have to, well, one part of that inference is the author's goal, right? What is author trying to say and why? And how does that work with what I know? So that's also perspective. So you're absolutely right. Reading is thinking. It requires a lot of critical thinking. So it's kind of two way to have deep understanding of uh, written materials that's reading comprehension, you need to have a critical thinking, but also by engaging in reading activities, you're also developing critical thinking skills as well. Thank you, that was really helpful. And can we go back to your formative professional experience as a young teacher in inner city classrooms that what maybe that's is what you experienced then and how that perhaps informed you about there's another way you want to engage with the education process. I was a classroom teacher in San Francisco. So when I was teaching, I was teaching in a primary grades. I also taught in high school, but primarily in kindergarten to grade two. And what I noticed, what first thing was that there's a huge variation in children's skills in terms of not only oral language skills, but also reading skills and writing skills and their knowledge, right? So then I started thinking about then what explains that difference? They're all in the same classroom with me. They're all in the same school but they differ so much. And one source, of course, is where they come from, right? In the, the household and you know what's going on in the homes. But beyond that, I just noticed a few things about some students. So for example, I was teaching in a bilingual program. Some students who just say, um, came to the US about say six months ago, even though they came in about the same timeline, their uh, acquisition of reading and writing in English differed uh, substantially. Uh, some children learned really fairly quickly. Some children kind of took much more time. So that led me to really wonder about what, what is involved in reading development and their thinking skills. So that led me to pursue my higher, I guess, degree doctorate in education. There's a lot of layers to this that I want to, I'm not sure how to organize what those early learners, early readers were doing. So let's start with the basic household setting. And in preparation for this, you've said the you've learned the best approach to fostering good readers at home is explicit learning versus allowing the child to develop on their own. Can you unpack that for listeners? Sure. Um, so formal learning happens in the school. However, children learn a lot in the homes before even they come to school, even after they come to school, right? So in their homes, they have interactions with family members and 
guardians and the people in the community. And those are all learning opportunities. And they may not look like learning because there's no explicit, they may not be explicit teaching, but you know, people learn through exposure, repeated exposure. And that's a very, very important part of learning. And that applies to reading and writing development and language development. Numerous studies have shown that so-called home language or literacy environment matters for reading and writing development. Some homes have a very rich oral language tradition, a lot of activities involving oral language or print, whereas some other homes do not. And that matters quite a bit for kid children's uh, reading development, writing development. Also thinking skills as well. Some homes, parents and uh, children among themselves ask each other some questions and uh, that helps them develop thinking skills, right? So environment, school is one type of environment. Home is a very important uh, environment and those interactions that happen in these environments vary quite a bit and that does contribute to children's uh, learning. Is there a window where the brain has the most plasticity that improves that early kind of acquisition of learning capacity? Is, is there a concern about exploiting that earliest sort of brain development? Well, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I cannot share with you about you know, that piece. But what's clear, actually, studies have shown that well, there's that plasticity piece, and there's actually, um, that happens actually throughout the human life, right? Yes, but right. But it's greater, it's greater in earlier life. That is uh, pretty clear from evidence. Now, I don't think people have drawn a pretty clear idea about whether there's a specific age at which point, right, there's substantial decrease in plasticity, etc. I think we have to think about, you know, early brain development, um, you know, structural development, the fundamental pieces, but also fine tuning of it. Fine tuning happens, continues to happen for quite a bit. And reading and writing experience does impact children's brain development as well. So it may be, if we could use like an agricultural analogy is, there could be at the most, where there's the most brain plasticity. And I, and I know there's not a neuroscience background, but there are there is cognitive training in your background, as I mentioned in the interview. But, but I'm just wondering if we can look at tilling the soil, the child's brain early is setting up the, it's expanding the capacity for when the literacy projects enter into that growth of that human being. Right. I guess what I can speak to regarding that is studies have consistently shown that early intervention, say when I say early intervention, uh, when it comes to reading and writing, I'm talking about primary grades, is much more effective compared to later intervention. That's later than, say, grade three, right? So. Okay. That's one important aspect, you know, of course, that's related to brain and plasticity, but in terms of reading and writing development, I think in terms of practical implication of it is this aspect. 
For those of you who just joined us, my guest for the full hour is Professor Yong Suk Kim. She's with UCI's School of Education, and she's the senior associate dean there. And she is, as you hear, she's a leading voice in the science of reading movement. Well, there's one more piece that I want to ask about that early childhood development before we go into all the breadth of your research and the kinds of studies that are going on, ongoing, is the introduction of smartphones and iPad type screens in the child's life. That was introduced after you started your research on literacy. But I want to know if you've had to sort of recalibrate approaches, assumptions, and interventions with that exposure the child has very early on, even at infancy, to a screen. Uh, so too much of anything <laughs> is harmful. And early exposure to, um, I guess, these uh, media, this matters if this is used as a substitute for parents and parents' interaction with a child. Evidence has suggested that children learn best with uh, you know, very direct interaction with people around them. So that's so key. We, I, I really that is I want to put that on a billboard on every, on every <laughs> street. The key is that personal interaction. I mean that we can't emphasize that too much, can we? Absolutely, because children actually pay attention to they're very, very perceptive to uh, the keys right in their interactions. So when they see when, when they interact with their, you know, their the, uh, parents or guardians, they see what they see. They hear what they say, whether their, um, you know, speech, parents or guardian speech is directed at them or others. Young children are very well aware of those and they respond better when they're actually directed at them. Of course, they learn when they're even in from speech, they're not directed at them as well. But the, I guess the, in relation to your question about, you know, media exposure, it's really thinking about, you know, uh, what they're using it for. If they use it well, right, for a certain purpose, for a specific time or limited time, it can be beneficial. But if they just use it as a tool, as a second, I guess, caretaker, that is not going to have a good outcome. So the experience of the personal interaction, it's, there is a, a value, a more profound value in that use of language, could we say? Yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about then, as uh, I'm taking a, a quote here out of some of the uh, interactions you've had with me, the explicit instruction for phonemic awareness, this, this ed, literacy education involves explicit instruction for phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension in this curriculum. So that's, that, that is so complex. Right. So reading is a really complex act. Again, adults may not think about it, but if you look at actually underlying processes, it's really complicated act. And the piece you just mentioned, those five elements are from a national a committee on uh, looking at all the studies um, that have been conducted on the topic of reading that was published in 2000. 
So you mentioned five pieces, phonemic awareness, phonics, vocabulary, fluency, and reading comprehension. So let me unpack this a little bit. So from a 20,000 feet view of reading, when you think about reading, you can think of it in terms of two pieces. One, for you to read written materials and comprehend or have deep comprehension of the material, you need two things. One, word reading or decoding. Because print is written, you have to be able to decode print. The second one is language comprehension. Let me give you an example. Say I show you a written text in Korean. Would you be able to read and comprehend the text? Most likely not, unless you are able to decode the print in Korean, meaning you're able to, you have the knowledge of what each Korean letters uh, represent. And then say you have the knowledge of Korean characters and what they represent. So you can decode, but even if you can decode, if you don't have an understanding of the meaning, you don't really have reading comprehension, right? So for essentially you need word reading and language comprehension. Now, the first two elements you mentioned, phonemic awareness and phonics are necessary for word reading. The rest of them, vocabulary, reading fluency, reading comprehension strategy instruction are necessary for the reading comprehension part. So phonemic awareness is an understanding of sound structure of a given language. Because in English, words or letters represent sounds, not meaning, children have to have an understanding of sounds included in words. So children who have more advanced phonemic awareness, they do better in word reading and spelling. Now, going back to the principle of English writing system, because letters represent sounds, children have to learn letters and the sounds associated with it. That's phonics instruction. You do that systematically and very explicitly. Now, when it comes to comprehension, you need to have an understanding of vocabulary words used and you need to also have critical thinking skills that we mentioned a while ago. We also have to have some other background knowledge and et cetera. So those are the pieces that are necessary. And this is not actually exhaustive list. This is actually some key elements that are involved in successful comprehension of written text. Well, thank you for that. So where does the American system in uh, training reading rank internationally at this point. And I, I say that not as a facile mm -hmm. question because I know there are so many sort of intercultural factors and institutional variations around the country that make comparing us apples to a whole lot of oranges around the rest of the world. But still, there is a kind of a sort of a general crude ranking of where we are internationally speaking. Yes, there's international assessment uh, called PISA and some others. Uh, U.S. is somewhere right in the middle, and that has been consistent for decades. Okay. So 
you have been doing so much research and, and on background, we we're talking about how representative the students and the, the households that they're from are of society broadly. So can you talk about how you consent and the kind of weight of how representative those consented households are to express how students are doing across the country? So when we do study, uh, we have a target population. So it could be students from uh, low uh, SS backgrounds or attending high poverty schools. And then we try to recruit schools uh, that meet our criteria. And then we send consents to parents whose children attend those schools. So it really depends on the target pop, the subpopulation we are trying to work with. In terms of, I guess, representativeness, you know, we usually work with student samples ranging from hundreds to thousands of children, depending on the scale of the study. A lot of times, you know, our samples are so-called convenience sample. That means those, these are the students that we can get to and get their parents' consents. And that's widely recognized, but that's the also that's widely recognized limitation, but also that's a reflection of current status. Because, you know, uh, accessing target students, it has multiple factors that uh, influences that, right? So first, we should be able to access target school districts, and then the school district should allow us into schools and the schools have to be interested and allow us in their schools. And then finally, parents should allow us to work with them. And because these are my, the minors are not eligible to consent. It's be, it has to be done by their parents who are 18 or older, correct? Exactly. So I work with uh, schools and children in schools. And uh, these children, a lot of children that I work with need their parental consent. So one thing I think what you are kind of maybe implying is consent rate varies depending on the sample. So say we are targeting students who are in high poverty schools. And when we have a parent consent, consent rates typically, especially when it comes to active consent, when we actually have to get consent from every single parent that they're willing to participate, consent rate tends to be low. There could be several reasons for that. One thing we do when it comes to language barrier, we have consent letters in multiple languages, but even with that, there's a huge variation. And one thing that studies have shown is that parents who are in high poverty schools or parents in low SS, SES backgrounds, they tend to have low consent rate. And that has consequences for our work. Say we have um, developed some instructional program and materials based on most um, recent evidence and we are trying to implement it in the schools. And parents who do not uh, consent, we may not be able to serve their children. So that's, as we, we talked on um, background prior to this interview, we talked about the confounding factor of some ethnicities 
might be already very challenged by navigating so many systems around our society here so that it's this additional kind of demand on them to understand, put a priority on the child being enrolled in your researches. It's a considerable barrier that would unlevel any kind of playing field for appreciating these learners across the board. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I think that's one of the important factors kind of getting in the way of us serving the very students that we want to serve. Well, it seems to me from what I know about some of the local nonprofits, there are peer-to-peer nonprofit agencies that know how to reach out and extend to a target population some kind of an intervention. And I'm just wondering if like what Latino Health Access does with the promotores is if there's promotores in different groups that could help advance your study to bring people into this consent process and enroll those children. I don't know if there's some kind of peer-to-peer promotion of your research. So there is a broader representation of students. Well, I think such um, efforts are important, but those, I guess really what matters uh, in that regard is really boils down to establishing relations and getting to know the community, right? And that really is a long-term effort. And that requires really some partnership, sustainable partnership that involves multiple parties, not only the researcher, but also community organizer and the schools and parents and other uh, partners. And having those opportunities systematically I believe it requires some infrastructure and research support, right? Because me as one researcher reaching out to the community and building relations over the years, as you know, building relations take years, and that's actually somewhat limiting, right? But instead, if we have certain structure at the university level or at the school level, uh, you know, a partnering with the community organizers or institutions and schools. I mean, that is the ideal situation to make real sustainable changes. I think we need that such an uh, infrastructure. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest for the full hour is Dr. Yong Sook Kim. She's professor and Senior Associate Dean of the UC Irvine School of Education, and she's a leading voice advancing the science of reading. We're talking about the kind of research enrolling early learners into these reading kinds of tools, essentially. So I'd like to know if the pandemic setbacks, they've got a long tail in terms of the time it takes to get learners from lesser equipped households to close the gaps that we're hearing about. So are you having to sort of retool a little bit of the research design to deal with how that pandemic opened up a gap in what learners are able to do? Now that's a really good question. I mean, one thing we learned, I guess, silver lining from the pandemic is our uh, recognition of the technology tools as part of learning. Of course, you know, um, it depends on how you use it. But 
now after the pandemic, I think teachers are much more comfortable. Also, we have learned as part of the research process, we have learned to use technology tools as part of assessment and working with teachers. Um, so that's kind of one of the things that we have done. So maybe the technologies that, helped build relationships in a way that hadn't been possible before. Is that part of a silver lining? Although I always hate to ever use silver lining because of the lethality of the pandemic, but has tech enabled for a, a means of building relationships that you said earlier is the basis for making inroads in these studies? Um, yes, uh, certainly. But ultimately, we need to have in-person interactions to really establish long-term relations. But initial, as an initial step, certainly, we don't have to drive all the way. You know, sometimes our partners are really far away. So technology is certainly helpful. I mean, in terms of instructional process and working with the children in our research, is that we can actually introduce tools um, teachers in the schools about some technology and they're much more comfortable in in terms of infusing some technology into their classrooms. Okay. Well, let's talk about Senate Bill 488 for teacher credentialing as it pertains to reading instruction and developing literacy performance assessment. You were involved in some of that. There's a whole calendar of goals that are set, it's underway. I, I believe, it did it start around 2020, 2021? Yes, it goes back a few years. Um, this came about with a kind of a national movement or trend, if you may, on uh, based on a discussion called the science of reading. So the science of reading debate came about, I would say about 2018 or 2019 when reporters or you know from popular media they noticed huge variation in student achievement across different parts of the country in different classrooms particularly some inequities in the issue so they visited uh, classrooms they visited uh, school districts and they've talked to a lot of people in different uh, levels and they have found huge variation in terms of instructional quality or uh, what's going on in the classroom. So that became, that's known as science of reading debate. With that, the really the key point there is that some classrooms, not all classrooms, some classrooms do not seem to implement teaching approaches that's informed by evidence or research. So along with that, there has been some movement in terms of a policy, then how do we support that, right? So how do we support implementing evidence-based teaching in reading and writing? So actually at this point, all these states except for Alaska has something called dyslexia legislation. And then many states have science of reading legislation. And this 488 Senate bill is kind of a one, I guess, a part of that uh, movement as now this is in California. Uh, one important part of the puzzle, if I can say, in terms of improving children's reading skills, right, is really teacher um, development. 
right? So teachers learn about how to teach in teacher development or teacher uh, education programs, and then they go into classrooms. So then Senate Bill 488 is about, is about what should teacher, I mean, people who are in the teacher education programs, what should they know by the time they exit the program? Or in re-education settings as well, right? Because some of them have already been in the in the career, and now it's California's SB 488. Enter that kind of a methodology, and so this is retraining for some of them too. So it's like a continuum. Absolutely. So those who are in the teacher education program, those they are called a pre-service, and those who are already in the in the workforce, they are called in-service. So we definitely need both in-service and pre-service. And this is also well recognized, you know, teachers develop for the rest of their career. And so, you know, in-service part is critical, especially in, when it comes to this uh, science of reading as well. So I'm wondering if as you're, I'm not sure if, how close you are to those students because you're in this administrative capacity and service in other organizations, but I'm just wondering if either in-service, pre-service educators are seeing that this credentialing, this fine-tuning of the science of reading is unlocking opportunity that's making teaching even a more interesting career. It's, 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 there's more impact. There's something, they're all thriving. Is there, is there any way you can speak to, to that benefit of how this credentialing is getting fine-tuned? Uh, would you say more when you say fine tunes? You're talking about you're wondering about some specifics of the kind of standards, or are you asking something else about the the specifics of the standards? Like you were saying, dyslexia was a large factor in this debate about how the science of reading needs to be developed further or seminal work and further development. But if once dyslexia is better understood and how to intervene, how to work with that through this mm -hmm. SB 488 teacher credentialing, if that makes now this setting in the classroom is there's something really remarkably positive happening palpably, right? Uh, more immediately. Right. So that's the idea, right? So dyslexia uh, kind of, um, the reason why I mentioned the dyslexia was because the one part of the movement, uh, well, the debate, uh, science of reading debate, was the dyslexia and parents who have children with dyslexia, and they really wanted instruction or schools to recognize and be able to support their children, right? So if you look at a lot of dyslexia bills or a part of these standards is that, for example, early universal screening is part of it. Mm -hmm. Because for you, for us, you know, to um, know whether children are at risk of developing reading difficulties down the road, we need to have an early idea so that we can actually do some preventive actions. So that's one important part um, that was not there before, but very explicitly recognized. Okay. And how does this credentialing? element mm. out of SB 488, how does this implementation or will this implementation take place in charter schools? Are they also accountable to this? Because I want to know it's like a, it's a different system sometimes with a little different set of uh, 
of rules, different accountability, but are they in this as well under the purview of SB 488? So SB 488, it applies to all teacher education programs. So those who are, well, teacher education uh, programs, right, teacher uh, training uh, programs. So that's the primary kind of way our teacher workforce is trained. And so where teachers go afterwards, it really up to them. So when it comes to charter schools, some children, um, some teacher candidates will go into charter schools, some will go to private, some will go work in public schools. So Senate Bill 488 does not directly apply to directly to schools, but really only the teacher education programs. But what about like the in-service teachers at the charter schools? Would they be obligated to report back to that element? If they are in the teacher education programs while they're teaching, then yes. While they're teaching, but I'm thinking in the in-service part that you're talking about. This Oh, no, it does not. No, it, this is for teacher education programs. So teacher education programs should be, uh, they will be liable for to making sure that their graduates have these you know, skills by mm-hmm. the time they exit the program. So in-service teachers, um, it does not, it's not covered. So I'd like to raise where we are in 2023. The quality of the educators coming through UCI School of Education and how that affects that quality of those those students in education, how that affects your foundational pedagogy. I'm putting you on the spot, admittedly, but I I, want to know. Right. So let me just put it uh, kind of in general, and then I can talk about specifics, I guess, So in general, there's huge variation in teacher education programs. Programs have different characteristics and different emphasis. Also, educators in teacher education programs also differ. Their backgrounds are different. Some come directly from classrooms. Some actually are doing research. So there's huge variation Mm -hmm. in the teacher faculty members in teacher education programs. When I say faculty members, I'm talking about a mixture, including, you know, lecturers and uh, tenure line faculty members, right? So depending on the program, you might have quite different experience. Now, when it comes to UCI, it's situated in Research One University, and a lot of faculty members in the teacher education program are in the Senate who are doing actively uh, research. So that would might be different than if you're being trained in somewhere else. So when it comes to say this um, science of reading debate, if you know in my classroom, for example, when I teach pre-service teachers, it's all basically, I mean, you know, I have been doing this already for a long time. Now it's going to be just required by the state. There's going to be some liability in terms of what I do in those classrooms. So, and we have to give a nod to our governor, Gavin Newsom, who is a kind of a poster man for dyslexic learners. And has he contributed in any way, any significant way in advancing the research in general and legislating, supporting what you're trying to do in the California state systems? 
Yes, I believe so. In the policy realms, we need to have some sort of collective effort and some champions, right? Someone who recognizes the importance of certain topics such as reading. So the governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, who it has or who identified as being dyslexic, of course, recognized the importance of the science of reading and dyslexia in the schools and et cetera. So I think that has played an important role in this, as well as you know, state funding some efforts, um, such as some screening assessments. That is not only just true in California, but other states as well. State leaders recognizing the importance sometimes requires some personal experiences. I see. And speaking of political dynamics, since we mentioned the governor and that kind of thing, how might the politicization of reading materials influence your work, your goals, and societal prospects? I mean, we're we're talking about banning bans on books and all that. There's a kind of a it's a, a clamoring that's sort of, that's taking up the bandwidth. I, I imagine you would rather that the bandwidth was devoted to solving this fundamental challenge, this foundational reading capacity, but has this politicization of reading materials throughout the academic systems, has that had an impact on the attention you're trying to capture and keep in advancing the science of reading? Absolutely. I mean, we do work, all my work is in the school settings. So all these policies uh, matter because when I work with teachers and students, you know, they're impacted by policies, right? So for example, when I was teaching in the 90s, Prop 227, uh, that, that banned bilingual education had an impact, a lot of impact on schools and people. Now 2016, uh, Prop 28 pa is, has passed. Now bilingual education in California is legal, right? That really changes the dynamics. In terms of fundamentally what I do in terms of research does not really change. I continue to study reading processes, uh, most effective ways supporting students and supporting teachers, etc. That does not change. But that, that the nuances in the work environment in where I do my work does matter. And it does matter in terms of how we provide support for teachers as well. And with this credentialing and with the politicization of what is being taught and how and all that, is that competing? Is that sort of an additional layer that is sort of a it's a zero sum issue in terms of what all have to take place inside the classroom. Well, so there's two pieces. Uh, one, from my perspective, as a researcher or a scholar, science is science. Our thoughts have to be driven by data and findings. That's as a researcher. However, I do understand that we Reality in the classroom is it, not really uh, driven by that only. I hope that we actually have more science-based instruction, right, evidence-based instruction. But, you know, that's not the only thing. A lot of times, people's beliefs and philosophy matters. And that matters not only in the classrooms for each individual teachers, but also in the politics as well, politics and policies. 
So education is one area where people pay a lot of attention to uh, when it comes to politics and the votes and et cetera, but in, in election. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's swayed by these, these uh, philosophies uh, rather than the data and science. So it's a, it's a dawning picture with the local governments, local school boards, and different political goals that are attempted that are, I, I think they can undermine what science-based approaches you want, as I said, to capture people's attention and to keep it. That's for me, a kind of a, of, of a concern there. So um, I, Absolutely. yes. And so is funding, where would you like to see more funding contribute to the science of reading? Where do you want to see more participation or do you want to see less? There's helicoptering uh, titans, helicoptering into a system that want to solve it in a flash a year and a half or two. But um, where do you want to see funding in? And maybe who do you want to see sort of like, go go do some other things, some other projects? You you know what I mean by that question, don't you? Mm -hmm. Right. So one thing that I have written about is funding for understanding classroom dynamics. So classroom is a really complex environment and teachers have to make a decision every minute. Now, when teachers employ certain practices, what are some factors that influence their decision-making? And what is the best way to support them um, to implement uh, the best possible um, teaching practices. So we do have some understanding about what goes on in the classroom. And also a lot of times, you know, media articles um, sort of describe what goes on, but that's a fraction of a picture. So what I would like to see is really um, money or funding regarding classroom instruction and what happens but also how can we best support? Um, so what works? What are some things that can work in the classroom? How do we scale up? What are some feasible practices? So those are some of the important pieces that I think should get more attention. And then the science of reading on the kinesthetic, audio, and visual learning. Is that right. something that's a part of the science of reading that enters into that? Or is that not even part of it? To some extent, it is part of it. The really the key piece there is what are some kind of essential non-negotiable pieces that have to be included in reading instruction versus so-called extras, the fluffy ones that looks interesting, sound interesting, but they're not. And part of it, you know, some discussion has involved, you know, multi-sensory, but you know, a lot of times people do recognize it and support it, but is there hard evidence for that? It definitely involves, reading involves phonological, that's sound. It also involves very much visual aspect of it, kinetic aspect in terms of writing and learning to actually write and also read part of it as well. So it's all kind of a multimodal, uh, Correct. A multiple coding, right? Multiple coding of information that helps that's not as essential, but it is part of it, especially in certain sector that's very important. But if it's a kinesthetic learner, 
as if I understand mm-hmm. correctly, as a complete layperson, though, if a person isn't taking in the information because they're not in motion, I mean, isn't that part of the kin- or kinetic or kinesthetic that if they may need to be standing up, they mean that because you were talking about all those aspects in the classroom. I'm so glad you got to that point because I think we just forget how complicated and all the factors in there. But some of them have to move around to take in and decode and comprehend what they what the reading material is correct that's I mean, right an accommodation mm-hmm. absolutely yes definitely there are some children who actually need some support like that yeah so it's actually then teachers who have to know that the characteristic and do not penalize the child just right. provide the best supporting um, environment that's just moving around and visiting you know just being able to just uh, then the teacher has to provide something to work with right right and another factor it's a big driver it's i don't know how cultural the element of curiosity is but i think it's more innate i'm just guessing and so a mm-hmm. curious mind is going to be probably have at least have more capacity probably to decode and understand and you know and retain all this and i didn't even get into traction that you know all of these mm-hmm. things happen before you get any traction and traction is where what you read is going to stay with you we didn't even get to that but you must be studying that too Right. I'm not actually sure about curiosity. And okay. I haven't actually read any studies that look at actually curiosity with that's linked to decoding or this really kind of a very small or, or comprehension. Yeah. Comprehension wise. So, yes, absolutely. I mean, comprehension will motivate one to dig deeper um, to understand the text. Right. So when you think about comprehension, we can think about, you know, shallow level of comprehension versus really deep understanding. Right. When one is curious, one will be motivated to stay with it and really spend time and understand. Yes. Curiosity definitely is one aspect. For it broadens the bandwidth. Right. Learning. But yes, I want to learn. Right. And I, I'm so sorry. I'm, I also am wanting to know about, but there wasn't time. But mm-hmm. if there is trauma, it's personal mm-hmm. trauma, there's there's household trauma, there's intergenerational trauma. Is that a factor that you are studying in terms of the science of reading that can it, that trauma could interfere with the reading development process? Well, I that's not the topic that I study. But the topic that we talk about in our area is anxiety. So say writing anxiety. So one has accumulated negative experiences with writing, right? So writing initially was painful, like you know, using grabbing the pencil and then writing itself was just not uh, has not been a positive experience. Then one will develop anxiety when it comes to writing tasks that will develop, you know, avoiding behavior and et cetera, and all this kind of, um, you know, vicious cycle. So, you know, I think that trauma, I don't, I don't study that, but I would definitely say in there's in the literature, there's an anxiety piece as well. I'm thinking of like trauma experienced socially. There is either mm-hmm. the, the bullying in the classroom, uh, preference, 
that a, an educator has for a kind of student versus others or trauma commuting to and fro school, a trauma in, you know, nothing to do with the school setting, but it's trauma experience and there's intergenerational trauma. So it seems to me that a trauma-free kid is going to have a better crack at this reading than one that has this trauma burden. Right. I mean, I think that will actually not only apply to reading, but all learning because Correct. Impact trauma impacts on brain processing. It's a very fundamental level, right? Um, it impacts brain processing and, you know, that's what's involved in reading. So I will, you know, again, I'm not an expert, I, but I can bet that it's impacting uh, learning in all aspects. Yes. And so, I mean, bullying in a classroom, that could be an immediate sort of thing. And, that it, and it could be intentional. There could be peers undermining each other or a teacher with their bias, their, their ethnic racial bias. They could be intentionally undermining that student's success in the classroom, though. I mean, that's to be completely right. clear and blunt about it. Right, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that people have recognized uh, in the uh, last decade is, you know, the importance of emotional engagement in learning or encoding information. So, you know, for a brain to learn that it has to encode information, right? And for that, you know, when children are really emotionally positively engaged, that's what happens. It's for people who experience trauma or bullying, any of sorts, right? that will actually impact their emotional engagement that then will have deleterious impact on learning in general. Okay, thank you. There are many, many more things to pursue, but I really think you've given us so many thought pieces for what demands are made that can help the learners thrive and what is undermining that achievement. And so I thank you so much for your time, Professor Kim. I so appreciate all the body of your work. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. My guest was Dr. Yong Suk Kim, Professor and Senior Associate Dean of the UCI School of Education and a leading voice in the science of reading movement. Well, that's my wrap. Next week will be artist, educator, and entrepreneur Irma Velasquez, who has just penned a powerful tome on her raising her son Aaron, and the title is Fish Dreams, A Mother's Journey from Curing Her Son's Autism to Loving Him as He Is. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 